You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Hey everybody, it is Wednesday evening, time for American Winer. My name is Alex. How's everybody doing? Guest tonight in studio, first in studio person in uh, over a month. Always, always glad to talk to somebody face to face. Ronald Arnold Thielman Jr. Uh, thank you so much for coming in, man. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's good to see you. Um, you are uh, a man of many musical pursuits. Um, you are a man of many pursuits. Period. Uh, and we will talk about a whole bunch of stuff. But uh, I always start off with the same question. That question is, where were you born? I was born in Hollywood, Florida. Florida. Yep. Where is Hollywood, Florida? So it's a tiny little suburb just, I want to say, northwest of Miami. Okay. So it's southern Florida, the tip oh, of southern yeah. Florida. And did you grow up in Hollywood? We, Yeah, we did. Um, we moved up to Michigan. My, my uh, dad was from Garden City and my mom was from Indiana. And uh, naturally, they ran to Florida and met and um, we grew up down there. I was probably, I want to say... 10 or 11 when we moved up to Michigan finally. Well, so your your early childhood was all Florida though. So. Oh yeah. So had you had you experienced winter before the age of 10 then or No, actually it's funny um when we moved up here on my birthday was the first snow of the year and um we moved up here in October and my birthday's in November and you know, we're outside in windbreaker jackets that were very neon colored cuz this is the early 90s. Mm-hmm. And um yeah, they didn't do much for the winter, but I was so just like blown away by winter and by, you know, something other than rain and hail. Like, a, like in a good way? Oh, yeah. I, I'm i I'm the weird one now. Everybody's like, oh, I hate Michigan. I hate the winter. I love it. I think it's great. It's nice to have four seasons in a week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we get that in Michigan. We mm-hmm. get the four seasons in a week. Um, I, I like winter. I, well, I don't like driving in winter. I got nothing against winter itself. Driving in winter is the only thing I don't like about it. I actually like it. You like driving in winter? I actually like it. So I I know it's weird. Um, I, I'm one of those weird guys that doesn't forget how to drive when that happens. Mm-hmm. You know, same thing with rain, apparently. But I don't know. It's just never bothered me. But I've always kind of been a little nomadic. I've always loved to travel. So it's just kind of... Okay, so instead of going eighty five, I'm going forty five. Mm-hmm. But to me, it's it's all the same. It's, what, what do you drive? Do you have a truck or do you? I have an SUV. Uh, that's why. There well, you go. Yeah, yeah, that I, helps. I've had an SUV. I've driven an SUV pretty much since two thousand five. Ah, uh, so fifteen years. Yes. That's a... I got smart early on. I was like, okay, I I ended up in a ditch once. Um, in a 95 Mercury mistake, as I like to call it. Um, I can't believe I've never heard that joke before. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But uh, it was – yeah, I did that once. I was like, okay, I I need an SUV. And I've just driven one ever since. And every time I've ever had to rent a car and it's this tiny little, you know, Ford Fiesta or something, I'm Mm -hmm. just like, I I can't do this anymore. I just can't. There's no room in here. No. Well, that's smart, and that's. I'm sure if I had an SUV, driving in winter would be a pleasant experience for me. I do drive a truck at work now, a pickup truck with four wheel drive, and, and winter is way more likable when you're when you got four wheel drive. Yeah. So. Um, but uh, but so you, I'll ask this next. What were you into when you were still living in Florida, like as a kid? Like what what were your what did you spend your time doing when you weren't in school? Oh, um, trying to stay inside as much as possible um, because it's always hot. It's always miserable. The humidity is is deadly. 
uh, when we were forced outside, uh, usually finding geckos. Oh. Uh, I was into pogs uh, for uh, – if that's not showing my age. Um, I remember pogs. <laughs> and, and then, um, you know, early video games. I was a Sega Genesis kid. Me too. I have a Sega Genesis now with the old Sonic mm-hmm. on it. Yep. And then uh, my buddy down the street had the Super Nintendo, so it was kind of nice. It's like, okay, which – where do we want to be today? And You got both sides of it. Yeah. You got, you got Mario and Sonic. Exactly. So that was – but it was – you never you – didn't, you didn't really have any like hobbies or pursuits or anything? It was pretty much just typical kid stuff that you, you were into? I mean my um, – yeah. You know, it, it really wasn't until I moved up to Michigan I kind of got – started getting into things because I, I figured out fairly quickly winter is cold mm-hmm. and I didn't really want to be outside too long in the cold. So it was one of those things like, OK, I got to figure out something to do with myself. And so that when you moved to Michigan, what did you start – what did you find to do? Um, well, other than video games, because PlayStation finally came into into existence, mm-hmm. um, I got into playing music. I got into uh, guitar first because uh, it's a gateway drug, kids, mm-hmm. and I uh, realized I just wasn't into the sound of a guitar at all. Uh, so by that point, it's probably around. 12, got into choir, realized I hate the sound of my voice. It's actually very weird for me to actually be in front of a microphone for once instead of placing it mm-hmm. in front of something else. And um, so then I decided – I was like, you know, that giant violin thingy looked pretty cool. And so I, I got into orchestra uh, when I was in seventh grade. And have kind of been addicted to all things bass ever since. Yeah, the giant violin for people that didn't that may not pick up on that is a, is the cello. Yes, that's what we're talking about. No, the cello is the size of a guitar. Really? So See, so this is. I'm glad I asked this because I don't, I don't know. So it's a uh, that's the seated guitar. It's um, but no, the bass is the six foot giant thing that people either hit with their fingers or use a bow. So that's – yeah, that's that's the upright bass and I, I got into that and took it really, really seriously until I was – well, through college. I went to school for it. I went to college for it. But um, I always loved it and then around 14, a neighbor that we had um, played in a band, uh, played metal and he saw that I was playing upright and he kind of – took me by the side. He's like, have you ever thought about playing this thing? And he showed me electric bass and he took me to his basement, cranked it up and hit hit the strings. And I was just like, whoa, like that. Okay, yeah. All mm-hmm. right. All right. That thing gets loud. Yeah. Heck yeah. yeah. Let's do that. Powerful. And um, he actually gave me a bass that day. He gave me my first electric bass, which was really cool. And he, he told me this. He's like, somebody did this for me when I was 12 years old. Somebody handed me this thing, gave it to me for free. It was a neighbor. And he said, do something with it. And so he's like, I'm doing the same thing with you. I'm like, here's this thing. Do something with it. And Was he older than you? Oh, yeah. He He was – at that time, he was probably in his 40s. Oh, shit. So he was – I thought it was like some other kid or something. But yeah, so he was the mentor then. You had a mentor figure at the very beginning. Yeah, he – it was really cool. He gave me a couple lessons, but because I'd already been playing upright for a little while, I kind of could figure it out. Mm-hmm. And um, he got me my first recording session as a su- as a studio guy. Um, 
because he couldn't go one day. So he's like, well, I know you're like 14, but you want to give it a shot? I was like, yeah, sure. And what was that? What was the project? Uh, honestly, I don't remember. <laughs> it was, so that, did it go well, though? It, you must have gone well. If it, you... uh, no. No? <laughs> no. It was, it, was, it was really bad. But the cool thing is the engineer at the studio, he's like, you know what? You're new at this. So I'm going to – he's like, I'm going to walk you through it. We'll get through this. And and we did and it was really cool. So he gave me a new mindset on things and, you know, I, at that time, I, my goal was just to be like the greatest studio musician ever. I was like, how do I get to do this every single day? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he gave me some tips and he said, you know, keep at it. He's like, you got something. It's not there yet, but, you know, you got something. So, you know, figure it out. And he brought me back for about three or four more sessions after that. And uh, I didn't get paid for those at all. But, you know, at 14, I was just happy to be be in the room. Yeah, so be doing it. I, I got to ask, like, how old were you when you started playing upright bass? I was 13. 13? And upright basses are like six feet tall, right? So as a child, how were you able to – how do you even do that? Were you standing on a chair or like – No. So they do make multiple sizes. They do oh, they, okay. they do come in, in slightly smaller sizes. They're still massive. They're still, mm-hmm. you know, huge. Yeah, you're carrying this thing around. It's the same size as you pretty much, mm-hmm. you know, even like, you know, as an adult. I was 5'1 at 13 though. Oh, so – And then by the time my senior year hit, I had stopped growing at 5'6 and I've been 5'6 <laughs> ever since. But, um, yeah, I was that weird, really tall kid in school at that point, and then it just stopped growing. Uh, so you you adapted to it pretty quick then because you – It felt comfortable. Already, yeah. yeah. It felt comfortable. I really I really dug it. It just seemed – it seemed like a natural thing. Mm-hmm. Well, I got to ask, like what uh, – so you got into music pretty much in middle school then. That was when you – that was when it happened for you, when you got bit by the, the I, musical bug. I mean I could use that. for me to actually want to play, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, my, I grew up with my dad playing guitar and I, I didn't learn this until I actually started really picking up an instrument. My dad actually had a recording contract in the seventies as a singer songwriter. Really? With and, who? Um, he was signed to Atlantic. Uh, he was, uh, it was an acoustic duo, him and a woman by the name of Nina. And so it was Ron and Nina cause I'm a junior and, um, he, it didn't go well for them. At all. Like they, they sold one song to a car commercial. They played all over the place. They had signed to a record deal and everything and it, it just didn't work for them. They were in that big 70s Americana hippie sound. The James Taylors and the, and the James Johnny Taylors, Mitchells, America, that, that Eagles, sort of, yeah. that sort of thing. And they just kind of, it just never worked for them. And, you know, I mean, he gave it hell of a shot and and he was successful they were successful well yeah to even have a contract with atlantic i mean especially back then you didn't have the internet you didn't have all you could do is play out you, studios were hard to find and expensive and yep. so just you're right just the fact that he did that yeah is a success in and of itself so i mean it was always around there was always a guitar to plunk on but i never really took it seriously until you know, until I kind of got into the bass thing. Mm-hmm. So, well, I got to. What, what, what does your dad do then? Like, what, what was the the job he ended up with after he stopped playing music? He ended up doing a couple random things, and then he ended up being a pres, uh, printing press supervisor. Oh, okay. So he did that until he was forced into like an early retirement uh, due to injury and illness. Hmm. So, so, and then off into other things from that. So. 
I see. And what did your mom uh, work, or was she a stay-at-home mom? She um, she worked at a hospital. Mm. So we got free daycare because she worked at a hospital. So I was actually in daycare as a kid until eight years old. Oh, nice. And then I was old enough to watch my three younger siblings. So, uh, so you're the oldest of four then. Yeah. Uh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> so you understand the curse. <laughs> yeah. Well, how, how much of a gap is between you and them? Uh, all four of us were born within five years. Oh, okay. So it was it was pretty pretty immediate um, after my parents got together. Um, my mom actually is disabled and she was in a really nasty car accident when she was in, I think, 21 mm-hmm. and um, caused a lot of issues. And even for my parents to get pregnant, they had, she had to have a bunch of surgeries to kind of fix things. And once they did, my parents were kind of old at that time. My mom was 25 and my dad was 30. Uh, no, I'm sorry. My mom was 30 and my dad was 34 mm. when they had me. Um, they, my mom was 25 and my dad was 30 when they got married. And so they were kind of at that time in the, in the mid 80s, they were considered kind of old to be having kids. Right, right. And so they wanted to get it done as quickly as possible. So how'd they meet? Um, my mom was engaged to somebody else and she was working as a bartender and my dad frequented that bar. So, ah. <laughs> all right then. Yeah. Did he? Does he still play at all? Or I mean, is well, he at all like? Uh, he actually he passed away in February last year. Oh, really? Um, but no, he he stopped playing right about when he got forced into early retirement, which was right around when he turned about fifty. Mm-hmm. Um, he had pretty nasty gout and arthritis from a hockey injury, and, oh. and it just was debilitating for him. And uh, actually, I remember on his 45th birthday, his middle knuckle blew up to the size of a golf ball. Holy shit! Yeah, gout is is nasty. Yeah, man. and and he, uh, you know, so that kind of took it out of him, and it, it got to that point he just couldn't couldn't play. It was literally too painful for him. Yeah. Like he, yeah. So, which was huh. it was sad to see because he he loved it. I mean, we had music always playing in the house. In the summer, it was always Beach Boys and the Beatles. In the winter, it was Boston and Rush and and that sort of thing. So it, it was kind of it was kind of neat. You always knew what season it was by the the music that my dad was playing in the house. Yeah, what was the reason for that? Like it just it's, kind of it's the just, mood. Yeah, you know. So it, it's all it was always very music was always very heavy in the house. Mm-hmm. It was always there. Um, so I mean, it's I can't imagine not having it around at all uh what kind of a student were you though like in school like what how how did you um so i was a solid c student pretty much in high school Uh, high school and (laughs) and and middle school and i just i got it i i mean I, i did what i thought i needed to just get by with it um but i really didn't i was very unsorted i wasn't sure what i wanted to do i kind of felt like do I really need this? Yeah, this you know, is a waste of time. <laughs> I'm like, am I really going to do like differential equations in no. real life? And it, no, the answer, you're not. The answer yeah. was no. It was, it was absolutely not. But I mean, I feel very lucky because at you know, 13, I kind of figured out what I wanted to do with my life. I was like, yeah, I think I can do this. Like, we, we I think I can do this music thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, <laughs> I'm very proud to say I've, I've had a fair amount of success doing it. Um, there was a good five-year period in my life where that was my only job, and it was great. Like, I I couldn't have been happier. I was kind of poor, but I I was 
ridiculously happy. Yeah, you were spending your time doing something that you wanted to do. Exactly. You know, and and even now, like, I look around, like, my wife and I are very fortunate. We both have pretty good jobs. We both have side hustles that, that do pretty well. And, you know, like, we're very fortunate in our life and what we've accumulated together. And we're looking around and I'm just like, do I really need all this stuff still too? Like I just did a giant instrument and effects purge out of my basement. I had a lot of stuff. And I I think in the last three months I've sold four bases and 25 effects pedals. And so you're downsizing then I, well, I've finally kind of figured out what I need and what I, what I want and what serves me and what I just don't need to have anymore. So I'm trying to get myself down to five bases. I started off at 21. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm trying to get down to, to the bare bones of what I know I am as a player and what I use and what I don't use and what clients, when I get hired for what they expect. So you said five bases, like what five bases do you think are the ones you, you need? Uh, so I have a Franken, base that is built from a bunch of different parts so that one's a jaguar four string bass and it's, it's set up like a p bass it's got flat wound so it's it does like the motown thing mm-hmm. um which i know i'm gonna keep that it, it's a great player looks great um i've got uh two six string bases those are i'm primarily a, a six string bass player which is weird and everybody kind of Looks at me funny when I bring him out at a gig. I'm like, don't worry. It's okay. Everything's fine. I'm not going to play it like a guitar. It's okay. <laughs> I mean, actually, it's funny is as many like interesting kind of like eyebrows I get from people that hire me and I, I show up with that. Um, the bass playing community is pretty, pretty rough on that. Actually. The six string? Yeah. Why? Um, they're um, – our Jimmy H- bass player's Jimi Hendrix is Jacob Storius, who was a legendary bass player for Weather Report and Joni Mitchell in the 70s, fretless bass player. He kind of reinvented the wheel and the game for all of us. And a lot of the fusion and jazz and soloist bass players that you hear would not be in existence today if it wasn't for him. Mm-hmm. And um, and he played a four-string. And so in a lot of the bass forums, you hear guys say, well, you know, Jaco only needed a four-string, but also – in 74, there wasn't a six-string bass. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's kind of take it or leave it. I've always looked at it. It's just the vehicle that I drive in this whole, like, musical thing. So so it's like a purity thing. Then it's a, But that by that logic, it's like people – you said Jimi Hendrix. That'd be like people, guitar players being like, well, Jimmy, Jimmy played, you know, with his left hand. You know, yeah. he, he played opposite. If you don't play like that, then that's not – you're not really you yeah. know, a guitar player. It's I, like, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think it's a mindset. I think some people <laughs> – aren't open to things my six string bass can do the same thing that my four strings can it's i just have extra and then more because there's two more strings it's a whole other set of notes realistically i only get about seven or eight more notes realistically oh yeah true yeah true so i mean it's of octaves but but there's choices there's positions there's playing there's timbers that you get out of higher strings and thicker strings that you don't necessarily get out of a four string so it's all nuance it's all i mean can I make a four string work and do everything I need? Yeah. Can I also do a six? And when I close my eyes, do I see myself playing those bases? Yeah. So it's a comfort thing. It's home. It feels right. I also spent many a year just practicing on them before I even brought a six string out to a gig. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I spent probably 
I got my first six string bass, I want to say in 2006. And I didn't take it out to a gig until 2008. Oh, so yeah, two years of so I, getting I, used to it. I spent a whole lot of time woodshedding it and like really working on it. And I'd take it to rehearsals, but then I'd take a four string to a, to a gig or five string if I needed it for, for whatever was going on. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. So you got the the Franken bass, the two six strings, and then what are the other uh, then, uh, two? Then the other two, uh, one is my 2005 uh, Garnier House upright bass, which I'm the original owner for. Um, so it was a brand new bass when I bought it, which is kind of weird for the uprights. And then I have an NS Designs um, NXT five string electric upright bass, and that's for playing those kind of gigs at band volumes mm-hmm. so and i don't have to fight feedback and i can stand in front of an 810 cab and crank it up to you know 11 and then it doesn't feedback where if i was to go to four on on an 810 cab with an upright bass the thing would just ring mm-hmm. so so there you go well let's go back because you you started playing upright when you were 13, mm-hmm. and then you it was a couple of years later or soon after when the 40-year-old guy got you into the electric bass. Mm-hmm. What was that guy's name? Uh, Rich West. Rich West. Yep. Okay. And so what happened after that? Did you join your first band soon after? Um, yeah. So it was funny because um, that was basically my freshman year, and I was playing in orchestra, and a – Guy who was a senior, he played drums in, in the high school and, and was a drummer in a band, in a funk band. And he came up to me and he's like, hey, are you, I heard you're supposed to be pretty good. And my orchestra director also taught guitar and piano in school and he was in one of those classes as well. And he's like, hey, I heard you're supposed to be pretty decent as a young guy. And I was like, I guess. I don't know. I'm just doing it. You you were that <laughs> kid though because there's like – I remember when I was in high school like and I wanted to be in a band so bad but I sucked at guitar and I could I, I was too shy. There's always those kids. That kid plays bass. He's been doing it since middle school which is freaking forever when you're in high school. You mm-hmm. know, It's like, oh man, he's been doing it for his whole life practically. Yeah. Then there's the kid who can sing, the kid who's really good at guitar, the kid who's not that good at guitar but everybody likes him anyway. Mm-hmm. So you were the bass player though. That's I, what, I was and I got pulled into it and we played like – Two or three shows, uh, and then they went off to college. What was the band called? Uh, Ambiguous Squirrels. Uh, and what kind of music was it? It was like Incubusy, like early Incubus, like Man. Fungus Among Us Incubus. What, what, what was up with Incubus like back then? Every guitar player knew the riff to drive, mm-hmm. wish you were here. Incubus, I was expecting them to be like around forever and then they just kind of they never really achieved the the level that i mean they were huge back in the day but like i expected them to maintain that kind of like what lincoln park became yeah i thought they were going to be playing arenas well into the 2010s you know i i think they took some time off in between on stuff i think they got burned out i mean that's hard i mean they had lineup changes they had drama in between band i mean a lot of people don't realize when you're in a band especially if it's not like this person is the band and then they hire people around them mm-hmm. when it's like a collective band it's really hard like it's i mean if you think now just like calling friends and family trying to organize to get together with people try doing that on a weekly basis and 
basis and then trying to book shows and travel in a vehicle that's probably too small for everything that you've now crammed in it, not making any money, mm-hmm. um, realizing that your drummer needs to take a shower every once in a while and that <laughs> the lead guitar player should probably buy new shoes because uh, they're just destroyed in smell and, and you know, little fights are stemming from things like, hey, you jerk, you forgot to pick up your underwear the other day. Mm-hmm. And even though I'm yelling at you at practice for something musical, it really has to do with the fact that you, you know, don't clean up after yourself. And yeah. It's so, been building and now I have an outlet for it. Exactly. I had my guest last week was is primarily an actress, but she was in touring bands for a while too. And she's, I mean, I've heard this before, but the best analogy is just bad marriage with like five different people. Oh is yeah. What a band is. Oh yeah. After a while. There's a honeymoon period if you're if you're if it's a good collection, mm-hmm. you know where you get in and and you're just like oh man this is great and everything's going perfectly and you gel and the music's coming out great and then but then that always ends it's it's always a matter of time. I mean I I'm I feel pretty lucky because I learned later in my high school career um, when I got back in a band actually with the same guy who was in my first band the drummer that first approached me and. He was in college and I was a senior in high school and he's like, hey, well, I've got this guitar player who's homeschooled uh, and he's younger than you, but he's awesome. And he's like, I'd love to play bass with – I'd love you to play bass with us again um, and do this thing. And um, and him and I had always maintained a good relationship. We were friends and stuff like that and I realized very quickly after that experience and when that experience blowed, uh, you know, blew apart completely – um, I realized I should never be in a band with people I'm friends with. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Just like you shouldn't live with your friends, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. And I I learned that lesson pretty quickly, and I feel lucky that I did. And I was, I feel like it benefited me quite well because I've been in since then. I've been in bands with people that are married. I've been in bands with people that are together. I've been in bands with people that have brothers and sisters in the band. And I watched that sort of thing, and I'm like, oh. And then. To try and interject in any of that, it never goes well because then they instantly get back together as a team, mm-hmm. and then you're 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 the outsider, exactly. So, so that's that's another bit of advice. There is, is that's that's great. Don't don't be in don't be in bands with uh, people that you're friends with. Yeah, kids. I mean, if you're doing it for fun and it's because you guys want to play your local coffee shop or you want to play like uh, some sort of social event, that's great. I think it's fantastic. But if you're going to try and do something that is going to require any level of real seriousness to it, then it seems to work better. Much like if you think about it, a regular job, you're thrown in with a bunch of people and you become friends with these people. Mm -hmm. Common goal, working towards a common goal. Exactly. It really builds a team versus, you know, yeah, we're already friends. Yeah. I I just want to party and play music. So, um, but so the so was that your second band then the one when you were a senior and the guy called you back and then it blew up? No, no, actually. So when those guys first called me in, it exposed me to all these older guys at school. I went to um, for those of you familiar with the Michigan area, I went to uh, PCEP, which is uh, Plymouth Canton Educational Park. It's that giant high school with three schools on it, and uh, there's like ten thousand kids that go to that school. Did you know? Because I, I, that was where I got into local music was the Plymouth Canton scene. I'm from South Lyon, so I had to drive out there. Um, 
But that was I have remember did, did you know John Connor by any chance? He was in a band called Mercury Shoes. I love John Connor. He's on next week, dude. No I shit. haven't talked to him in like in I'm not kidding, like years and years. And we didn't really know each other, but I would go see he was in bands I would go see and he's on next fucking week. So. That's funny. Yeah. I haven't spoken to him since two thousand four. Really? Yeah, it's I I went off and traveled for a little bit. But yeah, no, I remember John actually um Ask him about the Bongo Boys. The Bongo Boys for his okay. senior year. Well, so but if you were at the Plymouth Canton scene, then what was what were the bands you were in? List off some names because maybe I freaking saw you and um, band wise, um, like regular bands, I didn't join any. I played in all. Literally, my orchestra director, when she realized I could play and I was serious about it, she pulled me underneath her wing, and she's like, "You're gonna do orchestra." Uh, you're going so. to do wind ensemble. You're going to do jazz band. You're going to do percussion ensemble. You're going to do pit orchestra. You're going to do choir. You're going to do chamber events. And by the time my senior year of high school, the end of my senior year of high school, I had hit 130 gigs just for the high school. But it was for classical music. It was all for – It was classical. For... It was jazz. Um, I got pulled into doing some electric stuff for other people. Like we would start bands and then it would just – after three times, it would just – Just fizzle out. Yeah. So I got a real hard, real world gigging kind of like classical education. 130 gigs as a, as a teenager. Yeah. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Then I had hit uh, – done – 42 recording sessions by that point too. So by the end of my senior year, I'd done 42 recording sessions. But you were like, that That must have been great because you were like, well, this is what it's going to be like. I'm going to do this for a living and this is what it's going to be it's, like. You know? Yeah, totally, totally not how I ended up. Oh, really? But, well, it, oh, it, not how you ended up, but yeah, at the time it was. But at yeah. the time, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I was like, oh, I can actually do this. This is sweet. I should do this. And, um, and I was. And it was great. And I mean, I don't necessarily consider myself like the world's greatest bass player at all. I just, I like what I did and people seem to think what I was doing with their music and what they were asking and being flexible and, and understanding styles, techniques and approaches um, every, and a willingness to learn that. I think that was probably one of the biggest things. Everybody's like, yeah, come in. Yeah. Can you do it? Are you available? And I was like, yeah, gladly. So, I, so that was so you were like seriously doing it. You weren't just you know in garage bands and things like you were getting hired essentially mm -hmm. as a student. And I, I, th I think, and this is going to sound so pompous, and I know this, um, but because I was getting exposed to that level of things, the thought of playing with like guys that were still really learning, even though I was also still really learning, mm -hmm. but I was spending three hours a day practicing at home if I didn't have a gig or I didn't have a session. Um, you know, I, it was hard. It was hard because I'm trying to, at that time I'm learning music theory and I'm trying to ask these guys, well, you know, what chords are you using? Do you know what chords you're using? Well, it's, I'm starting here on the, on the fifth fret on this. And I'm just like, I, I couldn't read tab at that time. I learned how to read music. I didn't learn how to read tab. So I'm like, when they're talking to me about this thing and I, I went through a phase where I was very, very much trying to like do things by the classical book. So like guys were like telling me, yeah, you know, we retune, we're down in like E flat or down in drop C. And I was just like, why would you do that? 
<laughs> not <laughs> and that's why they lasted three gig or three practices or whatever and yeah, they fizzled out. Yeah. yeah. And and I just I just kind of I, I know it's I was I was an asshole teenager. So um, you know, and I, I thought I knew best in that regard. And really I didn't, and I probably could have been a nicer person about some of that stuff as a kid. Um, but because I was getting the I guess, quote unquote, like professional style gigs. Mm -hmm. And those guys were requiring me to do that sort of thing and reading charts and being in standard tuning and, and kind of doing that stuff. It just kind of, I, I just never really bothered with a lot of the high school band stuff until I was probably close to a senior. Mm -hmm. And that was when that kind of started. Well, yeah. what happened when you graduated then? Cause you said you went to college for bass. So. so I, um, I was planning on taking a year off of school. Because I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. My orchestra director, who I'd had since middle school because she did both the middle school and the high school orchestras, um, she was pushing me to go for education. And I don't know. I For me, I was like, well, I don't know if I want to teach. I don't know if I can do Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star for 25 years. Like I just don't know if I can do that. But having every summer off to tour would be kind of cool. Mm hmm and then um, at that time, I kind of got into religion for a little bit. I was one of those kids that like grew up in church his whole life. My parents were very much like, you need to go to church. We're going to church. You're going to church every Sunday. Where'd you go to church? Uh, Risen Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Michigan. Did you – is that uh, – no, Calvary Calvary is Catholic, so you yep. wouldn't have gone to that, the mm -hmm. barn and all that. No, no. I, I went to um, – it's – on Ann Arbor Road and gosh, Ridge, not Ridge, lots. No, not lots. I don't remember. Kind of out in the kind of out in the country though. A little, a little bit, bit more, there, yeah. 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 A little, little more out in the back corner of Plymouth, um, by Fox Hills. Um, the golf course. Golf course yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, which and it was a great church, and I had a lot of fun there, and I got confirmed there, and I'm still friends with my best friend Kyle, who. Went there and we got confirmed together and that's how we met. Um, but um, I got into that pretty heavy. So I decided you know, maybe I should look at a religious school because I did want to take a year off. But my parents and my orchestra director were just like, no, you need to go. I knew in my heart I needed a, a year off. I was like, I, I think I need to figure out exactly what I want to do and I don't necessarily feel like spending a lot of money doing that. And they're like, no, you got to go. You have no choice. And so I, I, I went – um, but while I was looking for schools, I I was looking at like Concordia University. I was looking at Eastern. Um, I knew the orchestra director really well at Eastern. I knew the bass director at Eastern very well because I, in my high school years, I went to Interlochen Arts Academy uh, during the summer programs. And the bass teacher at Interlochen is also the bass teacher at um, at Eastern, uh, Derek Weller, and. Uh, I got approached by Concordia University because they didn't have a string program, but they were starting one. And so I was like, OK, this is really cool. This would be great. Um, I was their first upright bass player, you know, and, and I thought it was going to be really, really neat. Um, so I ended up going for to be a uh, Lutheran music educator. And as I got into the program and I started going to religious classes and started asking questions and, you know, when you're. 18 and 19, you start formulating these things and trying to figure out what 
all of this stuff means to you, if you know your spirituality, your moral compass, all of that stuff, because you're finally on your own. Mm-hmm. And um, and it it just kind of I I did that, and then I I decided, well, you know, maybe I'll just do regular education. I'll do secular education and not not religious education. And I got into that program, and I just kind of wasn't for me. So then I was like, okay, I'll just do music performance. And and how how far in are we? Is this like all in the first month? Sophomore that you, year. Sophomore. Oh, okay. <laughs> By so sophomore year, took you know, a couple of years, and then you're like, okay, you know, music performance. Yeah, I mean, as I was taking those classes, um, so then by the middle of my sophomore year, they decided they were going to end the string program at Concordia. Oh, perfect timing. And they also <laughs> let me know that I wasn't going to have a scholarship the following year because all of that was wrapped into that. Great. So, so, so what'd you do? Transferred to Eastern like everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> I transferred to Eastern. <laughs> yep. 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 Um, so I transferred to Eastern to finish up there and I went for music performance and um, did that whole thing. Um, because of how heavy that Concordia puts in credits, it pushed me pretty far ahead mm-hmm. there. So I was able to get out relatively quick. Um, owed them a bunch of money. More than what a musician makes mm-hmm. uh, and then uh, got out and decided, OK, I need to do this music thing. Now, while I was in college, I got introduced to some of the guys that ran the Blue Note in Ann Arbor, which is no longer there. Um, but it was a jazz club. So I got kind of to break my chops in there. Is that the one by the Ark? Like right next to the Ark? It is now. But a few years ago, it was over by where um, – I think it's Stubbs Barbecue is now. Oh, yeah. Okay. There used to be a club over there and they closed down after a couple of years. Um, and then just recently, they just opened up one by the Ark, um, which was really cool to see. But for a couple of years, there was no jazz club in Ann Arbor. And uh, I got hooked up with Sean Dobbins there and I did some sessions with him. Uh, and then I started palling around with the guitarist from that band my senior year that the drummer – had pulled me into. Um, we started gigging around together and playing acoustic songs and he had me playing upright bass. And uh, What was the band called or the group? Did you, did you have It was just under his name. Mm. Uh, it was just Seth Grass. And um, I wrote one track for his album and then I arranged and helped write some of the other songs. And we went in and recorded with Ben Blau. I love Ben. He uh, he is he did the first three EPs in my band of the Primitive Shine. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I haven't seen him in a long time. I, I I haven't worked with him, but he is. You know what the thing is with Ben Blau? Mm. Ben fucking trained everybody. Mm-hmm. All the people that record now, Joe Giza, who I record with now, he trained. Joe knows him. Mm. Uh, the guy uh, Josh Karpowitz, who's uh, Chuck Okazian's guy at mm-hmm. uh, Pearl, he studied under Ben. Yep, it's like he's responsible for this entire area. The Metro Detroit yeah. rock recording scene is pretty much all Ben's guys. Yeah, um, I never studied with Ben, but while I was in sessions with him, I absorbed as much as I could. Mm-hmm. So. Um, it was hilarious. We were doing – when we were doing sessions for, for that Seth Grass album, I was in recording and I wasn't paying attention. I was just kind of working on what we were doing and the, the passage was really kind of technical. And so I'm getting frustrated and they could tell you know, in, in that. And so then I look over and there's Seth's ass in the window just staring at me. 
the whole time and it it broke the tension of the his bare ass or just his his ass his bare ass why was his why was he doing that what was mostly just to break it cuz i was getting frustrated you know it's uh. it's like you're you're playing these technical passages and i was splitting hairs about it but it was frustrating me and um cuz i took a much more celloistic approach to that album than i would have normally in terms of just being a bass player mm-hmm. and um so it was frustrating me it was it was it's a tough part, and I wrote it to challenge myself that way, and um, you know, and then just to see that. But Ben had encouraged that mm-hmm. quite a bit, so um, so that's that's what it's like recording with Ben Blau. If anybody's ever been curious, yeah, yeah, I, I never had a bare ass uh, in my face, but uh, but I do, you know, that doesn't surprise me that yeah. I can I can see that. Mm-hmm. We were a little bit more, we weren't quite as rowdy as that, but uh, but yeah. Um, so, so Seth Grass, that's what you were doing. What, what, and then what, what happened after that? Like, you... so when we did the album, he had funded a lot of it, um, you know, but I had written it and I'd been a, a fair, fair hand in it. I did help contribute a bit financially as well. And I brought the drummer that ended up playing on the album as well, who was Matt Gates, who was a phenomenal drummer. He unfortunately doesn't play anymore, but he was, uh, him and I had a psychic connection. I just knew what he was going to do. He knew what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. Call and answer. We knew exactly how to play with each other. It was fantastic. I, I do. I miss that kind of bass and drum relationship. So, yeah, musical soulmate. Yeah, um, good guy too. Um, well, w- real quick, when was this? Just so we have like reference for time. Uh, two thousand six, two thousand seven. Okay. okay. And so we did this album. We got everything together, um, and then Seth ordered the albums. Got the album art. And then they, I see the album when it comes like three or four days after he'd gotten them in and his name was very big and my name was very small. Uh, and then I saw the copyright on the back and copyright to him even though – And he didn't tell you any of this? No. Not at all. And it soured our friendship. It soured the musical experience together. Why did he do that? Like what was his why, – why not just tell you? If he'd have told you, would you have been cool with it? Um, Probably not. <laughs> but it would have softened the blow. It would have yeah. softened the blow. And I mean we would have talked about it. I would have thought, like at least talked about it. And because when we were playing shows in the area, it was booked as Seth and Ron and Matt. Uh, and, and I thought that was what it was going to be. And it just – wasn't that when I saw it and um, – So th- that was – you decided to split after that? It, it just soured – because we were friends. We had been friends for years and um, like two, three years at that point and it just soured the whole thing and it just – we were also working together at uh, Signature Audio Services. I was doing sound and, and running uh, a couple of concerts and things like that, summer concert series with that, doing installations of audio with him and everything and, and it just – Soured everything to the point where I just kind of like, I'm done doing all of this. Mm-hmm. And I stopped wanting to work with him. And uh, we did, for the most part, stop working together. So what happened after that then? So I started on the hunt looking for music and I had kind of gotten tired of playing indie cello pop. And I was like, you know what? Let's get into some heavy stuff. Like let's get into some real heavy stuff with this. And, and is this when Ghosts of August comes about? No. no? Ghost, Ghost was considerably later. Um, so, um, I started trying to find bands here in Detroit and this is late 2007. Um, I started playing with a country band, 
uh, Daniel Harrison and the $2 Highway. Um, I'm not sure whatever happened with them. I played with them for about three, four months. And then I started trying to start bands and, and hardcore had gotten really popular in Detroit around 2007 or so. And I remember going to a couple shows at Jacoby's um, in Detroit. I started watching guys just breaking other bands' stuff before things got on – before they got on stage and mm. everybody was starting to get really shady and protective and tribal and, and I just kind of looked at it. I was like, man, I don't want to be in that either. Yeah, I don't want to be breaking the stuff. Well, yeah. I don't want people breaking my stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and I'm just like, you know, we're all supposed to be like supportive of each other and, and it just seemed like every band everywhere I was looking in the Detroit scene at that time was – there were some good ones, but there was like also a lot of really crappy people. So I started looking far further and further away trying to find bands and I found a band out in Grand Rapids. And so I hooked up with them. They kind of looked at me like I was crazy because I'm driving from Canton all the way out to Grand Rapids. And What were they called? Uh, they were called The Perfect Third. OK. OK. There we go. I remember when I met you, mm -hmm. we talked about The Perfect Third. Yep. So um, – and that band did fairly well. We got to tour with some pretty cool acts. We were signed for a temporary time with 5050 Records. That label disbanded and then we hooked up with ELQ Entertainment, which is a management company. Um, and they got us on shows with um, Tantric, Uncle Cracker, Pop Evil. We toured with Pop Evil for a minute. Um, I mean just all sorts of really cool acts like A Storm when they had first come to America and now they're doing really well and doing really popular. Um, uh, what is it called? Uh, I, can't for, I can't remember the name of the band now. There's another couple of bands that we hooked up with. Did they have a single on the uh, radio? Yeah, they, they did. Um, gosh, I can't think of it now. <laughs> it will come to me after we turn off the mics. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, I mean, this is all like so this is over ten years ago. Yeah, now, so, yeah, yeah. So I'm trying to remember all this stuff, and um, so we did a lot of touring with them. Um, and so, but that sounds like it finally connected for you. Like yeah, you, you, it did. that drive to Grand Rapids was worth it because you were finally touring. You were that was is and are we into the five years now that you said where you were like I was doing that it for was a living? the start. That mm -hmm. was the start of it. Um, after that band disbanded around two thousand nine, um, I went into freefall, and I was just using the connections that I had made doing that stuff. I ended up moving out to New York for six months. New York City. Yep. And what was that like? Uh, that was awesome. I lived in Williamsburg, right outside, five minute train ride right to downtown. Um, I got hooked up with a guy who was setting me up at studios like with uh, Kenny Goya. Um, I met uh, Kiera there. Uh, I ended up hooking up with her another year down the road and did some touring dates with her. The, oh, really? You played with her? Mm -hmm. Kiera who did Lincoln Heavy with Lincoln Park. And then mm -hmm. there that was – I my tenure with her was done right before she did that. Uh -huh. And so I kind of missed the wave on that one unfortunately. Um, it's crazy, man. That's Lincoln Park's last freaking single. Like that's a you know mm. something else. But so we we did. I did that, um, and then I was doing a lot of upright bass in the scene there. Um, but the jazz scene was so locked in there. Like the guys have their go to guys, and this little you know punk from Detroit. Who are you? Yeah, yeah. Um, but as I was working in some of those studios. Um, 
I, I kind of had like a, a one-on-one with Kenny Goya and he had, he had looked at me and he said, you know, what do you really want to do? I was like, this, like, like this thing, like what we're doing right now, sitting in a room recording, doing things. And he's like, well, he's like, you're an all right upright bass player. He's like, but you're a better electric bass player. And, and I bet you'd never heard that before. No, I right? had. Oh, I had, had uh. And I had that realization too and I knew mm-hmm. that. Um, I always felt like an electric bass player on upright and I always felt like an upright bass player on electric. Uh, so it was kind of always a – Grass is always greener. Yeah. And and uh, he's, like, he's like, you're a really good electric bass player. He's like, he's like, you could make a real living if you move out to LA. And I was like, well, I don't know anybody out in LA. He's like, I got you. And so he, he hooked me up with – um, a couple guys and he said, you know, give these guys a call, you know, see if they'll take you out there. And he's like, you know, let them know that I, I'm sending you. And he's like, if they call me, I'll let them know that they just need to take you. And so he did. And um, I got hooked up with Roadrunner Records out there. Uh, I was doing some session and studio work um, for some of their artist development stuff. So like singer songwriters that they were developing, hoping that those guys would catch on fire and do things. Anybody that people no, want to know? No. No. <laughs> no, didn't work out at all. <laughs> um, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. I was working. So you did New York and L.A. Yeah, I did. In the same year, it sounds like. You said yeah. six months in New York. and six, then... no, six months in New York, and then I stayed out in L.A. for about a year and a half. Where in L.A. were you when you lived out there? I was right on Hannity Road. It was basically – I was about a mile and a half away from Rodeo. Oh, okay. But I was living in a in a flat apartment with seven other people. Oh, wow. There was only five bedrooms. Uh, there was only one bathroom. I hope somebody was dating. There, <laughs> at least no. two of those people were no. No, well, oh, it never God. sounded like they were dating. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so they, you know, it was it was fun, and I was working, and I got hooked up in some studios and. I started uh, learning how to how to record and how to edit, particularly how to edit. I was always told when I started doing studio sessions that an editor is worth their weight in gold. And so uh, they – actually, Kenny uh, had told me, he's like, you need to – you need to learn how to edit drums. He's like, that's the thing that nobody wants to do at all. He's like, if – he's like, I have a guy I call to edit drums all the time. He's like, this guy makes 50 grand off me a year. I was like, oh. Okay, I'll do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you know, at that time, you know, twenty four, twenty five year old Ron is like fifty grand. Yeah, Hell, I yeah. want fifty grand. I know, yeah. right? <laughs> um, for, especially for doing something that you really enjoy. Um, I, I don't enjoy editing drums. For it turned for, out, for the record, yeah, I hate it. Um, I do it. I do do it. Um, and they, um, you know, so I did that for a little while. Um, then Roadrunner kind of went into free fall. There was some discontent and stuff internally in the label. A lot of people got fired. I got caught up in that um, as well. Um, But at that same time, I got a phone call from my parents and they were very ill. My dad was was really, really kind of suffering and having a hard time with with illness. My mom's injuries from her, you know, from her disabilities were starting to catch up, especially mentally Mm -hmm. um, because she had serious closed head injuries and trauma and stuff like that. So it was starting to really catch up. It was affecting her speech and everything. And they were financially just destroyed. So uh, I got a phone call and they're like, we need you to come home. And so this is late 2010. And uh, so I sold just about everything I had and grabbed a plane ticket and flew home. 
and have been in Michigan ever since. Did you live with your parents when you first got back? When I first got back, yeah. Yeah, I came in and I wanted to see what was going on. At the time, all of my siblings were young teenage assholes and, you know, one of them was in his 20s and um, they were just kind of like free fall. They had kids staying, underage kids drinking. My parents were just happy to have everybody in the house. That That's mm. all they cared about. They weren't really paying attention to what was going on and I came in and I saw what was going on. They actually had Canton police staking out our house. Oh, my God. Like waiting to bust drunk kids. And uh, when I saw that, because I had come home, I did a session in Grand Rapids. I hit up a friend of mine. I was like, hey, you got anything for me? And he's like, yeah, I got some stuff. Why don't you come out? And so I went out to go see him and do a quick session and trying to make money because um, I really didn't have much going on at that time. I didn't really have a job or anything because also late 2010, you know, that was right after – you know, everybody was trying to recover from the the financial crisis and everything. So, right. So I um, I had, had uh, started cleaning house with that, not letting these kids um, take advantage of my parents. Like my parents were buying like three hundred dollars a like a week from of groceries in Kroger, and like these kids are just coming in into my fridge and like raiding. eating stuff and yeah. raiding. And I'm just like, I was like, what the hell is going? I'm like, no wonder you have no money. <laughs> yeah, so you put your foot down on that and then that became your – Well, so. the turning point, I remember this very clearly. My brother had a bunch of people around a bonfire and there's this kid who's, I mean, probably 18, 19. He's drunk at my parents' house. I had just gotten back from Grand Rapids and this kid, I was talking to people and he had the audacity to shush me in my own house. Oh, really? What did he shush you for? Because I was too loud because I was talking to somebody. He's like, shh. And I just looked at my brother. I'm like, did this MFR just shush me in my own house? And I grabbed him by the ear. I picked him up and I said, get off my property. Uh-huh. And then I found out there was a 16-year-old kid there who was drinking with a bunch of 21-year-olds. And I'm looking around. I'm like, why is he here? Oh, well, you know, he's all right. I'm like, no. I'm like, where does he live? Oh, just down the road. I was like, come on. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, where do you everybody live? Everybody out. You know, done. you know, yeah. and everybody's like, well, why you got to be there? I'm like, because there's Canton police sitting right here looking for you guys. Yeah. But because this is my fucking house. Yeah. And that's why. Well, and at that time I came home, my dad had asked for five grand to help bail them out. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I did that. I gave that to them to help kind of get them right. And then I'm looking around and I'm like, these kids are like hanging out here. I'm just like, get out of here. Yeah. yeah. This is a family house. This is not like. So did you get them to stop coming around and then oh, you were yeah. able to stabilize oh, yeah. the situation? I, I stabilized it and then I moved out for a minute. And then uh, my best friend at the time – or still my best friend uh, named Angie, uh, she had hit me up and said, hey, I'm getting married. I'm like, oh, cool. I guess. Cool. Now, Angie and I in high school, I met her in 2001, fell madly in love with her from that moment. And we had always either been dating somebody else or or not. She's like, well, I'm getting married. You should come to the wedding. I was like, okay, great. And I said, yeah, let's let's do this. So I, I went to the wedding. I watched her get married. I was bummed out. I had a realization. I was like, oh, I missed out on that one. Mm -hmm. So then I got really, really back into studio work and working on stuff. And I, I got flown out a couple times to do some recording sessions. I got flown out to do some editing really kind of fell back into that, which was awesome. And so she um, she goes off, gets married, and then I get, you know, I get really serious about work. 
And then some of the things that I used to do for Roadrunner came back to haunt me. Mm-hmm. So as I was trying to get work and things like that, they're like, oh, wait, you're part of that whole thing that happened with um, Roadrunner and when it fell apart. And so I started getting blacklisted from things. Why were you getting blacklisted? Like why? So I did have some knowledge about stuff that was going down. Mm-hmm. And – a couple people got upset that I didn't warn them about it. And so it kind of caused a whole ripple effect where people were saying like, well, you know, you're just one of them. I'm like, guys, I got fired in this too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. So I got blacklisted from a couple places for a minute. Um, it, it eventually came back. But by that point in time, my friend Angie had started – she got divorced and I swept in. I was like, let's – do this. Mm-hmm. Not gonna t- not gonna miss that opportunity. No, nope, no. Nope. Right? I was like, I missed it once. I'm not gonna miss it again. And Angie is your wife. Angie right? is now yeah, my wife. and Angie, Angie, and you've been married. For... And she's also listening to this. I'm sure. Too. Oh, there we go. So, oh, hi, Angie. Hi. Um, but so uh, so, so all that happens, mm-hmm. and that was probably like just within the course of a couple of years. Then too, right? Like you said, late 2010 is when you came back. So you're literally looking at the time frame between 2009. And 2012. So three years. Just bam. So so you in that span of time at, towards the at the you you moved back home. Did you were your parents doing better by the time you you got you got you know done stabilizing, making sure the drunk teenagers were not coming around all the time and the cops weren't outside? And, no, 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 they didn't. So uh, they didn't. My dad at that point in time got really heavy into alcoholism, mm. became very verbally verbally abusive. Um, to family and friends and used my mom as a bargaining chip because my mom is sweet as pecan pie. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's – so that became tough because he was using her as a bargaining chip. Mm-hmm. Um, so you were still dealing with all that in mm-hmm. addition. So you, throwing yourself into your work seemed like a pretty logical thing to do. It was so cathartic. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I could – especially started getting into really heavy music. Again, and I was like, I really started to enjoy playing, and I started really enjoy mostly performing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so at that time, Angie and I had gotten together. We got our first house. I finally was able to kind of separate myself from my family because it was kind. Of, it ended up being a very disruptive and and draining relationship. And so once I kind of broke out of that, because it gets very easy and you know this as being the eldest, it's kind of drilled into you from day one that you're going to be responsible for yeah. all of it. If, if they do something stupid, it's on you. Not For me, not so much now. They're all adults. A couple of them are doing better than I am now. But uh, but yeah, as a kid, mm-hmm. it was like – especially at, at like family functions where mm-hmm. there's – it's like you're the oldest. You're not – you know, if they're doing something, you got to tell us. You got to make sure that they're not doing it. It's, it's like I'm, they don't listen to me. What the fuck? I mean when I first moved back and I was trying to stabilize the house, um, my parents were like, Ronnie, you got to talk to them about this. <laughs> I'm just like, aren't you the parent? <laughs> I'm just the older brother. <laughs> yeah. I've been gone. Why the they're, fuck would they listen to me? Exactly. They're just like, who's this stranger that is now living in the house? Yeah. Why is this guy grabbing my ear? All, I just wanted him to be quiet. <laughs> but yeah. Well, so so anyway, um, uh, this this is when Ghosts of August came about. Yes, yep. in 2012. Yep. So, so end of 2012, um, they had done really well. They had released the song Disease. They had their self titled album out. They started picking up 
radio play, playing all these cool shows, big events, Rock on the Range. Yeah, they were opening for everyone oh back then. Oh, my God. And I was so jealous. I was, I was listening to it. I was like, ah, this, this is – they're from here? Like, what? I should – do you need a bassist? Yeah. Well, so I was doing um, – I got to do a couple sessions in a couple places and somebody had clued me in that Terry, their bass player, was leaving. And he's like, they're looking for a guy. They're like, you should hit them up. And I was like, well, yeah. Now, at this time, because I was starting – I was blacklisted. I was having a hard time finding like regular audio work and it got to the point where, well, mortgages do and things are – you know, bills are piling up and savings is not there at all. So I got a regular job. You know, because I had to. You know, it's it's one of those things. I was I had gotten to the point where it's like, okay, I need to like need some stability, stable financial. Well, and, you know, Angie and I had gotten together, for, and I was like, well, there's a future here, so I should probably make sure there's some comfort for her in all of this. And mm-hmm. and she had we had been friends since 2001, so she watched me go through all of that, the highs, the lows, the exciting stuff, the traveling, all of that. So she had she had been a real cheerleader for a lot of that. And um, so I was like, well, I got, I got to hold my end of the bargain on this. Mm-hmm. And so I got a regular job and, and fell into that trap, which is a, totally a trap, 100%. What, the day job trap? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's – yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what were you doing? Um, so I got into actually where I'm still at because uh, I do still also maintain a regular job. Um, I was a welder. I was working as a welder on a machine. Um, after nine months of that, I went to the manager there and I said, look, this is, this is bullshit. I'm a smart guy. This is, I can't keep doing this. Like do something with me or I'll do something with me. Mm-hmm. I got a chance to interview for the inventory clerk position. Did that for a year and a half. Then they asked me to become the inventory analyst. So I did that. Then they asked me to become a materials coordinator. So I did that. And now I'm the shipping and receiving manager. So, yeah. You continue to climb the ladder. Yeah. yeah. The, th- the day job trap, you know, you call it a trap. It, it, it gives you what you want, but that stability is also sort of, it, it can be, it drains the energy that you have oh, yeah. for the other, uh, the other pursuits. For all the other, yeah. I mean, and the music thing, I'm still working at it. I'm still doing things. I'm still pursuing other avenues with it. You know, my focus of trying to like, quote unquote, like make it as a rock star and stuff like that. I'm not really focused on that sort of thing. I'm I'm focusing more on my studio engineering. I'm opening up my own studio at home. Mm-hmm. Um, just started buying, you know, a, basically framing to build a room so that I can have a drummer play at all godly hours of the night and nobody's the wiser. Mm-hmm. Um, no wife is the wiser. Uh, <laughs> that's not true. She'll catch me every time. Um, but it's one of those things like, you know, I, I'm focusing on, on doing more engineering. I've been doing a lot of podcast editing, which I just recently stopped as of January. I was doing eight different podcasts at the time, just editing and cleaning up so that it sound professional, making sure that levels are correct for, for the different, uh, different platforms. Um, and uh, I got out of those because we're expecting our first child in in March. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, well, I should probably, you know, clear my schedule. Yeah, a bit. just yeah. a little bit, you know. <laughs> so we're so I'm doing that. Um, planning on assuming everybody's healthy and happy. 
uh, getting back into everything around May. Um, so I'm going to take a couple months off, you know, make sure the house is ready, make sure the wife's ready, make sure the child's ready, and then kind of steadily step into that. I do have a couple secret projects coming up that I can't really talk too much about, but they're coming up. I'm really excited to do a couple of them. So I've got a buddy of mine who I'm going to do his album. Actually, I have two guys, two buddies that I'm I'm doing their albums for. Uh, one is a bass player, the other is an engineer. So, which I'm excited to do that, and then hopefully I can get back into the podcast editing for for people. Sweet so, man. Mm-hmm. Well, um, we are at the top of the hour. Believe it or not, uh, that really flew by. But I, I'm not. I'm not. I have one more question for you, and it could lead to a whole other discussion. So I just want to ask it and see what happens. But um, you've done every sort of aspect when it comes to music. You've done the recording. You've engineered. You've you've done session work you've played out you've toured you've you've done everything that you could possibly do pretty much as a musician who makes music for a living even when you were a teenager you were doing the 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 classical and the jazz and all that um what is and i know that this is a broad question but what is your opinion of the music industry right now and is it good or bad or i mean and i know it's again it's like well it's a it's a complicated thing it's nuanced you know Mm -hmm. there's not really a binary thing but just what do you think of it, especially compared to how it was when you started? And then also, where do you think it's going to be in another decade, we'll say? I think it's the same, actually. Really? I, I think there was a free fall moment. I think there was turmoil, especially with media changes, with distribution changes. with. But, you know, the record labels figured it out, the ones that survived. I mean, now they're giving awful contracts to bands, um, myself being caught up in one before. Uh, well, a couple now. Um, you know, so, you know, they figured out a way to make money. And, and the they, way is streaming, right? Is it- uh, streaming's part of it. Uh, part of the, part of it is the record deals. So, um, that would be the 360 deals that most bands nowadays are, are given. And, and by the way, anybody who's listening, who's actually doing something and somebody approaches you with a 360 deal, don't take it. Don't ever take it. And the reason why I say that is because it ends up just being a credit card. And you're paying on that credit card. So mm-hmm. don't do it. You're going to owe that money back. If somebody's coming to you with that sort of deal, you're doing everything right. Only take a deal if it's going to propel you into the next level of audience. So if you're already selling out a 1,000 or 2,000 you know, person venue and p- record lab- labels are coming to you and offering you a 360 deal, which is basically where they get to take a little bit of everything from you um, – be that sales, live performances, appearances, endorsement deals, you know, where they basically, oh, yep, you rang up a bill and now you got to pay it. And so they expect you to pay out of everything. And if your shit doesn't sell, you're, you're in trouble. You're, you still yeah. owe it. Yeah. You still owe it. It's, it's just a credit card at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, make sure that they've got the right kind of distribution, the right kind of connections, the right kind of concerts that they can put you in that will put you in the next level. That would be the only reason to do it because if you look at it now – Distribution is so much wider. You can do it. You can hit it. You, you, if you study the algorithms of Facebook and Instagram and, and the like, you can do this on your own independently. It's possible. It really is. It's tougher when you're doing it on your own. But the industry itself has figured out how to survive because it's still here. It's, it's 100% still here. They're still churning out hits. They're still churning out people and bands and things. And it's here and it will be here. Um, but now as an independent artist, you have a much better shot than you did when I started. You know, I 
Because there's there's no there's no free fall. There's no evolution that's still happening. Mm-hmm. We've reached the new thing. And I mean, streaming will I think will be here forever. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think we're at the point where as long as technology keeps and continues to grow, we're streaming. We will be streaming. I mean, I pay for Spotify because I believe in trying to help pay for artists. Um, you know, because to take time out of your day in order to create good art, you know, it costs money. It it really does. And so you have to figure out a way to fund it. Hopefully these streaming companies and, and I mean big artists like you know Taylor Swift and, and the like that have really fought those guys to say, no, 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 you need to pay artists appropriately because it used to be artists would make money off of their album sales. Well, albums are a thing of the past. Mm-hmm. Streaming now pays you 0.0001% of what you're doing and uh, you know so artists have to make money on the road by playing – Live events, that's why you see an upswing in people offering VIP events because honestly, that's how the artist makes money to survive. Mm-hmm. And it's touring. Yeah. yeah. So I mean – and merch as well. Always always grab a good band t-shirt, right? So I mean that, I think it's here. I think it's always going to be here. I think it really hasn't changed. They finally kind of figured out how to monetize streaming versus albums. They've got that figured out now. It's the same as it was back then. Mm-hmm. It's just now – Artists have a little more power to control their career if they're motivated and dedicated to it. It's very possible now. So, what do you see happening, like in the future? Besides, I mean, you'd say streaming's with us forever, but like, is is there anything else that you see changing in the next decade? Hopefully, the quality of music. Mm-hmm. You know, I, of I, mainstream I, music of like. Well, the, I, mean, I mean, they're they're basing everything off of a, a quantifiable, you know data sheet, you know, just like any, you know, any other business, right? Yeah. So they're doing that. So they're going with what they know works. So I'm hoping that we'll get to diversify the types of music that we're hearing because it used to be in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Pop music was just popular music. Yeah. Well, whatever was popular at the time. Now pop is its own genre. And so now, you know, you look at everything, everything is, you know, there's 55 genres in rock alone, Mm -hmm. you know, let alone pop, country, crossover, whatever you can. Hip hop, rap, everything. And then the post, everything that has post on it, you know. So uh, hopefully with such a wide dispersal of artists and music, we can get more of that stuff brought up and people can hear more of more independent artists that way. You know what I hope, man? I I, th- I hope that the sea of data that we live in right now, I hope that somebody figures out how to make it more of a meritocracy where – I mean it is – it has elements of that right now for mm-hmm. sure because sometimes people that rise up really deserve it, you know. Yeah. But one of my favorite quotes uh, from listening to podcasts, I, I, the Black Keys were on Joe Rogan last I saw that. fall. I love that. That part where he's – Patrick Carney, the drummer, is talking about he's like the social media numbers being the only metric mm-hmm. of what determines who gets signed or, or, or whatever. Like the basically the labels are only signing people with you know the highest social media numbers. And he's like, you know what? When I was – Nine years old. I bought Vanilla Ice, Ice's Ice Ice Baby and I went home and I listened to that shit like 250 times in a week. He's like, that's who's listening to this shit that's getting a billion streams in a month is these fucking nine-year-old morons. Yeah. And that is totally true. I listen to fucking Celine – I mean 
nothing against Celine Dion. I just saw Celine Dion at Little Caesars in November. But like, I I took my little sister's uh, uh, Walkman when she wasn't using it, and there was Celine Dion in there. So I listened. And that when you're a kid, you just listen to that shit over and over and over and over. It was Savage Garden for me when I was like nine. Savage Garden, man, the Animal Song. I remember that. (laughs) The other sister soundtrack. Um, So yeah, I, I hope that the this this. The streaming sort of uh, – it's not just who gets the most streams. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like the quality of it that, that – I, I hope I hope that starts to play into people that rise. Yeah. I hope that that, uh, that plays into it more in the future. That would be what I would hope for in the next decade. I, I do too. I'd like to see like – because, you know, you talk about like – and maybe we're just getting old too. I'm sure this probably has something to do with it. There's some curmudgeon in there for sure. But it's – I, I would hope that the music that comes out that I, I would hope that we have like another Nirvana or another, you know, Black Sabbath or another uh, like an, I mean another Beatles, you know. But that's the thing; it's like the Rolling Stones when they came out, they were One Direction. Like that's oh, what yeah. they were. It was it was the well, same thing. And the same thing with the Beatles. I mean, they were you know I couldn't even tell you a, a kid pop. I can't even. I, I don't. Know I keep who, up on it. Mean, I'm trying to think of like who's pop. I mean, well, you got Post Malone. You got uh, Billie Eilish. Just won four fucking Grammys. I think she's great. Yeah, she's so she's she has her merits. You yeah. know, she has. You, you listen to her and you're like, this. There's cleverness here. There's yeah. this isn't just mindless. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I production. Think, I think we're seeing. I think we are starting to see those things break through the ceiling a little bit, which is fantastic. And I think a big part of that is the social media aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's, I mean, I, I think it's here. I think it's always going to be here. I think the industry's here. I think they figured out how to get back to where they were before. They have to be smarter about it. So they pulled themselves out of the dive. They're nowhere near where they were before in mm. terms of altitude, but they're like, okay, we, we, we solved the problem. Now we just got to maintain course here. Mm-hmm. So cool, man. Mm-hmm. Um, well, shit, dude. Thanks for coming on. Uh, it's been great talking to you. Yeah, definitely. I've really enjoyed it. So, and, uh, and yeah, uh, everybody else, um, I will be back next week. As I mentioned before, it's so weird that the, it's such a small world, man. Uh, John Connor, who is, uh, he actually, ha- he lives in Nashville now okay. and he has his own podcast now called the John Versation podcast. <laughs> so we're going to, uh, we're going to talk about that. I will be reminiscing with him. And you know, what's really funny is he didn't know me back when I would go see his, the bands of his him and then he joined a band called The Rising Tide, which was part of a band called Sandbox Heroes. There was yep. the Great Basement Crusade, Tab Tragedy, Which Way Is Home. Um, so I'll be talking about those days with him, and then whatever, and then all the things that he's been uh, he's been up to since then. He was in a band with Joey Fava from Kaleido called Robots in the Garden. That was mm-hmm. what he did for a while. So we'll we'll talk about all that with John Connor next week. Um, but uh, yeah, so everybody have a great weekend. This has been American Weiner, Podcast Detroit Thanks, guys.